seated. Taking your Bibles, would you turn with me to Acts chapter 28? Beloved, we have come to our final reading in the book of Acts this morning. The reading is verse 11 through the end of the chapter, which is 31. We have recently heard under the tutelage of Luke how the Apostle Paul was brought to Rome safe alive through the most extraordinary weather event that many on that ship had probably ever seen. Fourteen days, neither seeing sun nor star, cast aground on an island called Malta, and everyone spared. Well, now we will come to the final movement of Luke in his sequel book. Of course, the Gospel of Luke is his first, and the Acts of the Apostles his second. And here in this final reading, we will see that purpose for which this entire book has been written. Of course, Luke is simply reporting historical facts that he has gathered, but under the care of the Holy Spirit, he is reporting them in a certain arrangement. And he has set before the church of Jesus Christ for the ages to come a proper vision of the supremacy, of the ultimacy, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, help us now as we are upon the occasion of your word being publicly read and preached. Lord, we do come to you, for it is you who has the power to help us. Lord, we confess that according to your word, your wonderful works have transpired by your own speech. You spoke, let there be light, and the first creation came forth. You spoke, let them live in my son, and the second creation was born through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you and we praise you that you are speaking to us yet, but Lord, we need your help. We pray that your Holy Spirit would attend to our hearing and that you would indeed overcome in us that dullness, that resistance, that indifference that we all had before we first heard your effectual calling. You overcame it in our conversion. It was your pleasure to do. We ask, Lord, now as your children for you to overcome again our weakness and let us benefit from your word today. We pray for our sons. We pray for our daughters, that they would too hear the voice of the master, and that they would believe his word, that they would indeed cling fast to him and to his mediation on the cross and at your right hand today, and that they would even excel us in holiness of life. Lord, let us all hear, we pray. Help us all or else we cannot be helped. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 28, verse 11. This is God's word. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium, and after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Patoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. 
And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when he came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soul that guarded him. After three days, he called together the low leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is God's word. <clears throat> If we only had the last two verses of Acts 28 to evaluate Paul's visit to Rome, we would think his visit a smashing success. Two whole years of ministry, many visitors for him to welcome, much preaching and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, and it even says at the very end, Paul spoke with all boldness and without hindrance. Sounds like a smashing success to me. But if we only had those last two verses, we would not know Paul spent most of every day for two years chained to a Roman guard. That's verse 20. If we only had the last two verses, we would not know Paul was prevented from going wherever he wanted, whenever he wanted. And if we only had the last two verses, we would not know that everyone who visited Paul at his rented home knew they were visiting a prisoner of the Roman Empire, a man waiting to stand trial before the emperor, who himself was descending into madness, a bloodthirsty madness, 
His name was Nero. We have more than the last two verses. We know the hard realities of how Paul was marked for assassination by some of the Jews back in Jerusalem. We know the hard realities of how he was brought to Rome via a shipwreck. And we know that he was chained for two years. And because we have more than the last two verses, we also know something else. We know that the Jewish leaders in Rome rejected Paul's message. They rejected the salvation of God in Jesus Christ. In fact, this is a big feature in the way Luke ends this, his second book. We hear about this rejection in verse 23 through 28, and I will return to it a little later before we're done. So with the addition of those hard realities, with the addition of that news of the Jewish rejection in Rome, how do we evaluate Paul's two years now? Do we move the needle from success to failure? Beloved, it is always, always a strong temptation in us to think that we cannot successfully do God's will because of either affliction or opposition. Have you ever been so tempted? We like to think that if all our troubles were fixed and resolved, then we could be the Christians we are supposed to be. If all of our children were born again, then we could be the Christian we were supposed to be. Then we would talk about Jesus in our home the way we're supposed to. If we didn't have this terrible boss, then we could be the Christian at work we're supposed to be. Then we could talk about Jesus the way we're supposed to. On and on it goes. We like to think that if all our troubles were fixed and resolved, then we would have the Christian experience we are meant to have. When we give into this temptation, we are really beginning to believe that man is big and God is small. We are beginning to believe other people and other forces are all powerful, but God is weak, senile, cold-hearted, indifferent, or mistaken to have placed us in the setting we are in, a setting of affliction and opposition, very much like Paul's. Beloved, there is a reason Luke arranged his historical report the way he did. He is helping the church escape the, temp the temptation of a worldly mind as she enters the post-apostolic era, which is now the era in which you and I are living. So Luke arranges his report so that the final eight chapters, have I stressed this enough? The final eight chapters of a 28-chapter book are all about one imprisoned apostle and the afflictions and opposition he endured right to the end. What we see is that Paul did not regard affliction and opposition as signs from the universe that he was a failure. He did not regard affliction and opposition as signs that he should quit the faith. On the contrary, Paul continued to preach Christ through affliction and opposition. This is what marks 
his life and ministry as a success. Christ and his message of salvation was more important to Paul than political freedom. Is it to you? Christ and his message of salvation was more important to Paul than living a life of quiet and ease. Is it to you? Christ and his message of salvation was more important to Paul to even living a long life. Beloved, is that to you? So by the Holy Spirit, Luke shows the church that affliction and opposition will be the normal environment in which the gospel advances. Eight chapters at the end of his sequel, his magnum opus, eight chapters of the gospel going everywhere God wants it to go, saving every soul God wants to save without hindrance, even while his apostle is afflicted and opposed all the time. The church needs this message from Luke because we are going to pick up the gospel right where Paul left it, in the land that was once under deep darkness, the land of the Gentiles. And we're going to bring it forth, not because the roads are paved and plowed, but because they are covered with briars and thorns and opponents and afflictions. We're going to bring it forth anyway because that is the very platform upon which Christ's worth shines before a world that lusts for paved roads, that lusts for plowed roads, that lusts for the absence of affliction and the absence of opponents. The gospel advances under the weight of the cross. Affliction and opposition are a platform for the church, not a problem. Oh, if I could get you to say that to yourself every morning. Well, that would be kind of weird, I suppose. Beloved, the gospel thrives on a platform of affliction and, op- and opposition. It is not a problem. In God's hand, affliction and opposition are the very stage on which the Christian will speak most clearly and most boldly of the hope and salvation of Jesus Christ. Because then the world will see we do not lust for the things of this age. We are Christians. Our great hope is in the age to come at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And our salvation is by faith in Christ, who suffered for our sins. How can we now forsake him when, when we suffer just a little for his name? So here then is the point. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not chained just because the servants of Jesus are chained. Paul made this point explicit in his last letter he ever wrote. He said, quote, I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. 2 Timothy 2.9. Luke is making the exact same point through his narrative record that Paul made there to Timothy. And it is quite clear in Paul, excuse me, it is quite clear in Luke's final two verses of the book. Paul is afflicted, and Paul is opposed in Rome, 
yet he continues to speak of Christ, quote, with all boldness and without hindrance. With all boldness. With all boldness. That means several things. It means Paul did not allow his social humiliation to silence him about Christ. People don't think highly of you if you are in prison. Paul did not allow his social humiliation to silence him about Christ. With all boldness means Paul did not let rejection by important people silence him about Christ. He was rejected by Agrippa, rejected by Festus, rejected by the chief priest of Jerusalem, now rejected by the leaders of the Jewish community at Rome. He did not let rejection of important people silence him about Christ. That's boldness. With all boldness means Paul did not let the prospect of his own death silence him about Christ. This boldness that he had is the power of the risen Christ in him by the Holy Spirit. It is boldness from heaven. So it does not cast away love. It does not cast away kindness. It does not cast away mercy. Heavenly boldness keeps all of those things and is bold. But heavenly boldness does not regard men with fear. Luke also says Paul spoke of Christ without hindrance. Now, this statement of Luke's could mean that the Romans did not put any restrictions on Paul's speech, even though he was restricted in his movement. It is certainly possible that this is what Luke means by it. And if so, it would be Luke's way of saying, just as Paul had internal freedom to speak of Christ, that's boldness, he had external freedom to speak of Christ. That would be without hindrance. The Lord had chained Paul's body, but not his mouth. And this is often how the Lord deals with us, his servants. He will often afflict us in many ways, but leave our mouth open so that we can sing praise, so that we can pray, so that we can speak of Jesus Christ. We saw this in the life of Job. Everything seemed to be afflicted, but we never read of his tongue not working. And everything he said was confirmed by the Lord, unlike everything his friends said. So this, without hindrance, could simply be a reference to a speech code. But there may be a double meaning to those very final words of the book, which is really actually just one word in Greek, without hindrance, the last word. Instead of, a, instead of it being a statement on Roman speech codes for prisoners, it may be a statement on the fruitfulness of the gospel. It could be Luke's way of ending this whole book by saying, no affliction, no opponent hindered the harvest of elect souls which God intended to harvest in that great city of Rome. Paul even speaks of this harvest in one of his prison epistles, the letter to the Philippians. At the very end of that letter, which Paul wrote during these two years of house imprisonment, at the very end of Philippians, Paul says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. That's Nero's house. 
And we know a few things about the word household. Paul is saying even some relatives or or perhaps close family members to Caesar have have been saved. But that is not all. Earlier in Philippians, Paul says, the gospel has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Philippians 1.13. Even some of the elite military men, the praetorian guard they were known as, have been saved. But that is not all. (laughs) Paul then says to the Philippians, and most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Philippians 1.14. Beloved, that right there is also one of the main reasons Luke has written so extensively of Paul's afflictions and opposition to make you a confident Christian. Our confidence as a church, your confidence as a Christian, comes from one place only. And to say it first in brief, it comes from the Lord. Paul said, most of the brothers became confident in the Lord because of his imprisonment. Philippians 1.14. Now, whenever we say the Lord... We mean Jesus Christ, crucified for us sinners and raised from the dead for us sinners and seated at the right hand of God in heaven for us sinners and ruling in triumph with all authority and power for us sinners and coming again for us sinners. That's what we mean whenever we say the Lord. We mean him. We mean those mighty works of him. We mean that majestic love of him. For us. That is what we mean by the Lord. So to become confident in the Lord means the Holy Spirit helps us see by faith the ultimacy of the Lord's kingdom and the ultimacy of the gospel of his salvation. This is what the brothers were seeing more clearly by Paul's imprisonment. They were seeing more clearly the ultimacy of the gospel. And I fear, as a pastor, that for some of you, the gospel is not ultimate. I fear that your children's sports are more ultimate to you than the gospel. I fear that having a peaceful home life is more ultimate to you than the gospel. I fear that having money and leisure is more ultimate to some of you than the gospel. Beloved, this is what keeps me awake in the middle of the night praying for you. We live in a decadent age where even the Church of Christ has imbibed deeply of the affluence and leisure of a society covered with screens and streaming videos. You don't like inflation. You don't like taxes. Of course we don't but you are among the wealthiest people that ever lived on the planet. And it is so easy to give your heart to an ultimacy that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you do, 
you lose your confidence in the Lord. And the church then loses her confidence in the gospel. And then we stopped sharing the gospel. J.C. Ryle, a bishop, pastor in England, 150 years ago said this, the man who can take deep interest in politics or sports or money-making or farming, but none in the conversion of souls is no true Christian. He is himself dead and must begin to live again. He is himself lost and must be found. For such a man has found his ultimacy in the things of earth. He has found his ultimacy in the world. He has found his ultimacy in the flesh. And here's perhaps strange news. Christians in the visible church of Christ, sitting in church pews this morning throughout Pleasantville, Wisconsin, which we call the Fox Cities, they have also fooled themselves. Their ultimacy is in things of the world, and they use their Christian faith to obtain it. One of our dearest brothers and fathers, J. Gresham Machen, in his wonderful book, Christianity and Liberalism, now 100 years old this year, wrote these words. Christianity will combat Bolshevism, but if it is accepted in order to combat Bolshevism, it is not Christianity. Christianity will produce a unified nation in a slow and satisfactory way. But if it is accepted in order to produce a unified nation, it is not Christianity. Christianity will produce a healthy community. But if it is accepted in order to produce a healthy community, it is not Christianity. Christianity will promote international peace. But if it is accepted in order to promote international peace, it is not Christianity. Our Lord Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. But if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, in order that all those other things may be added unto you, you will miss both those other things and the kingdom of God as well. Beloved, I bring this before your attention today because in our text, there's a noticeable group of people who knew their Bibles better than you probably ever will. There is a noticeable group of people in our text today who were covered in the outward form of religious life. They were distinct from their neighbors, whom they mildly and quietly, well, deeply and quietly despised. I speak of the Jews. They lived among the Romans with hatred, and did not want to see the Romans receive the salvation of God in Jesus Christ. And they rejected the, the salvation of God, brought to them by God's apostle. Why did they reject it? Because it did not give them the kind of kingdom they lusted for. You see, the Jews, by and large, not exclusively or absolutely, but the Jews, by and large, lusted for a kingdom of this age. They wanted the Messiah to come, 
And they would know that he was the Messiah because he would give them back all their earthly goodies. He would put them back on top. He would make them wealthy. He would make them fat. He would make them free. They wanted an earthly salvation, an earthly kingdom. And when the true Messiah came and he said, I have come to bring fulfillment to all which these earthly signs were merely pointing to, a heavenly kingdom, a kingdom of salvation, a kingdom that covers your sins and makes you new creatures in righteousness. When, when he came and offered that, the same kingdom Paul is preaching, they rejected him and they reject his apostles. Paul said the Gentile church could end up doing the same thing. You can read about that in Romans 11. Luke is letting us see Paul so closely in his afflictions and oppositions for eight chapters so that we would see the ultimacy of the gospel in Paul, so that it would be established also in us as the ultimate truth and ultimate ambition of our lives. And the gospel promises us heaven, not earth. When Paul did not change the gospel, or quit on the gospel, or become afraid of the gospel, when Paul remained bold and focused and determined to speak of Christ in spite of affliction and opposition, the ultimacy of the gospel shined brighter and brighter through him, and the brothers became confident in the Lord. That, I take that. Philippians 1.14, as an exposition upon the last eight chapters of this book, so that we as a church would become confident in the ultimacy of the gospel. We see gospel ultimacy in the very way Paul handles the Jewish leaders of Rome. When they reject the gospel, you see that in verse 24 and 25. When they reject the gospel, Paul does not say to them, you know what, you'll be okay. You'll be okay with God. You're religious, you're serious descendants of Abraham. You'll be okay. You can go to God your way and I'll go to God my way. Paul does not say that. Multiculturalism is not Paul's ultimacy. The gospel is his ultimacy. He speaks no such foolishness he knows there's an ultimacy to the gospel. Neither does he say something like this. You know what? Maybe I got something wrong. Maybe that's why you're having a hard time believing what I'm saying. Let me see if I can rework it a little bit, rework my theology, and redraw some boundaries a bit. And why don't you guys come back tomorrow, and I'll have a new and a different version of the gospel, one that's perhaps more believable. He says no such foolishness. He is unperturbed and unmoved by their unbelief. Instead, he quotes to them the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 6, 9 and 10, the prophet who announced 
these very men's condemnation long, long ago, some seven and a half centuries ago, before Paul is standing in his house with them, that prophet announced these men's condemnation. They have dull hearts. They have deaf ears. They have closed eyes. They are unhealed. Why? Because they are dead in their sins, and they think they have the salvation of God. But the tell, if you know a hard word, the proof they are dead in their sins is they cannot glory in their own Savior, their own Messiah. They cannot glory in a salvation that he brings. They reject him because he does not give them earthly treasures. Now, Paul does not regard, you can see it, he does not regard the rejection of the Jews as any sign that he should modify his message because the gospel is ultimate. Instead, Paul is steadfast, he's he's resolute, he is unmovable with the message of Christ. He does not think it is okay that the Jews reject it. He does not think they will be okay. He does not regard it as simply cultural difference. Paul instead stays the course, holds fast, changes nothing. He sticks to the same gospel he started with, all because he knows about its ultimacy. Beloved, why doesn't Paul modify the gospel? Well, we've said it because he knows the ultimacy of the gospel, but to break it down a little bit, think about this. The ultimate thing for Paul is not something found in this world. The ultimate thing for Paul is not agreement between all human groups. That's not his ultimate thing. Acceptance by those at the top politically, that is not his ultimate thing. Acceptance by his religious forefathers, the Jews, that is not his ultimate thing. Freedom from affliction is not his ultimate thing. Freedom from opposition is not his ultimate thing. The ultimate thing of Christ's apostle is proclaiming the way of salvation, God's salvation, in Christ crucified for sinners and raised for sinners and coming again for sinners. That's Paul's ultimate thing. To see the ultimacy of the gospel means more than anything else that you want to hear the gospel preached to yourself that you want to speak the gospel to others and want preachers to be raised up and sent out, even to refugee camps in southern Europe. You want that gospel to get out, and that is your ultimate. And so you are arranging your earthly life to exalt the ultimate thing, the announcement of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis has Screwtape writing to Wormwood these words. Once you have made the world an end and faith a means, you have almost won your man. And it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing. That comment fits very well with what we heard a moment ago from Ryle 
and Machen. Once the devil plays upon the temptation in your heart to make the world your goal or the things of the world your goal, then it is no problem if you say, okay, I'll pursue that worldly thing, but let me use my faith to pursue it. Let me find a version of, of the gospel that says, I deserve to be free from opposition and affliction. I deserve to have harmony with those at the top politically. Let me find a Christianity that keeps that feature. The devil's totally okay with you doing that. Beloved, there's a girl on a college campus who became a Christian by a campus ministry. That's when the heat started to be turned up on her life from her forefathers. They phone called from across the ocean. They wrote letters. They sent telegrams. They even sent persons who could handle her and bring her back, perhaps snatching her off the street if they got lucky and putting her in a van, dosing her with a drug to keep her controllable as they worked their way through an airport. But by God's grace, it never happened. She was hid from house to house, from house to house, and she continues in the faith today in New England. That girl needed the very same thing you and I need that's laid down in this text before us for the last eight chapters. It is a servant of Jesus Christ showing that acceptance with his religious forefathers is not ultimate. And that is a deep, deep cord to break. But it must be broken. This is why, of all things, the book of Acts ends on a statement from the Apostle Paul that condemns the Jews in their rejection of their own Messiah. There's no flattery to them in what Paul says from Isaiah 6. And that is a glorious thing because in the post-apostolic era in which you and I now live, we need to see that the gospel has ultimacy. Not our earthly relations, not even those in our own home, Jesus says in Matthew 10. The gospel of salvation is our ultimate. And it's there that we learn how to deal with all the afflictions and all the opposition in a way that is honoring to that same grace and mercy that the gospel offers to sinners. We will not learn it by making a family member, a forefather, ultimate. Beloved, I urge you this morning to indeed search and examine your own life. Are you still dead? Are you still a dead man? Are you still a dead woman? Cut off from God, languishing, in a state of misery and darkness 
because you are pursuing everything but Jesus Christ and the salvation of God. That you want things of this world more than you want the things of Christ's kingdom. If it is true of you, the best thing you can do is to acknowledge before his throne that you are dead. Call out upon him, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. I'm a blind Bartimaeus. Heal my eyes. He will not reject the humble, penitent petitioner. For those of you who are, even this morning, made confident in the Lord, because you have seen the endurance of Paul holding to the ultimacy of the gospel. If that's you today, rejoice because it is grace that has kept you in that confidence. It is the word of God that has reached out and grabbed your conscience again to keep you from drifting away to the trifles of a world that is passing away. Praise him that he's done that. And let it be the strength of your worship and prayers in the days ahead. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for how the word lays hold of our mind with a mighty grip for such is your care and love of your people. We thank you that you have shown us through the life of our apostle the ultimacy of the gospel that his not quitting that is not his not changing the message. All of these things are a testimony to us that he is your apostle, Lord, for he looks so much like you in his steadfastness, for your life flows through his own. You are the vital sap of what we see in your servants. So we praise you for the grace that is given to them and hope that it can be given to us by strength. And Lord, we do pray for any among us who are yet dead in their sins and their, test, their conscience testifies to them, even now they are, for they have no interest in the salvation of God and Jesus Christ. Perhaps they only use an outward, visible religious faith to get the things they really want, to get mom or dad off their back, to get the wife to leave them alone about going to church, to get perhaps a turn of favor or fortune with some God they don't really love, but perhaps they need to keep making money. Oh Lord, if they are dead, tell them the truth, we pray. Let them lay hold of it. Let it bring them to their knees in fear of God. And let it bring their voice forth to heaven in hope of God. For you are the God who raises the dead. Testify to their conscience that you are not hard like they are. That your hand is open to the penitent, to the humble. That anyone who believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ shall not perish. Grant them to come to him 
for his saving mercies and cling to him for all the life that they need from him so they do not return to the vomit. Oh Lord, we pray such good things would come. In Jesus' name, amen.